What's up, coaches? You're tuned in to Keep Your Pads Down, your home for all things D-line play. So wherever you're listening today, whether you're in LaGrange, Indiana, Appleton, Wisconsin, Clemson, South Carolina, or in our home, great state of Texas, thank you for checking us out today. We are rolling right along with season three of our podcast here and, uh, and just celebrated our, our three-year anniversary uh, last month, or I guess earlier this month. In that time, the last three years, we've talked with over 100 coaches from uh, counted up this weekend, 19 different states and one coach from Canada. So, yes, uh, I am a Texas high school football coach, and a lot of our guests do come from the state of Texas. But we love having guys on here from other parts of the country. And we are doing that today when we sit down with Western Michigan defensive line quality control coach Casey Rowe. And I'll tell you this, without a doubt, the biggest benefit of doing uh, this podcast has, you know, over the last few years, ha really has been the relationships that I've built uh, with the guys that we've had on here as guests and and the guys who listen each week. That has uh, been a lot of fun getting to know coaches from all across the country and, and hear their perspectives on things. So with that being said, if you do have someone you'd like for us to bring on the podcast and you can connect us with them, then let us know. You can send us an email to uh, kypdpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on Twitter uh, at kypdpodcast. Now, speaking of getting to know coaches and building up your network, Another great way to do that is by setting up an account with Our Coaching Network. Our Coaching Network is a football coaching platform that connects coaches from all levels and helps them get better every week. Our Coaching Network has live clinics going off usually two to three nights a week and, and even extended clinics on the weekends with each week's clinics added to a library that can be referred back to at any time in the future. Uh, one of the clinics that you'll have access to once you create your account is our 425 clinic that we did last weekend. It's a four-hour clinic over D-line play, linebacker play, DB play, and then philosophy surrounding the 425. And not only that, you'll be able to check out the clinics going off this week. So get on over there and create your account today. Subscriptions are super affordable. You can even sign up for a free week, and then you can cancel it anytime. So there's no pressure. Start connecting with and learning from coaches all across the country today with our coaching network. Coaches, spring sports are in full swing. So how are you communicating with your fans? parents, and community about things like final scores to ball games, schedules, starting lineups, or scholarship offers? Well, if you don't have a great answer to that question, then you need to head over to GoEdit Graphics, an awesome graphic design site that allows any coach to create custom graphics from their library of templates in a matter of minutes by changing the colors, the text, and the images to make it your own. They offer categories like game day, scoring, player profiles, and communication, just to name a few. The platform is easy, it's affordable, and no design skills are needed. GoEdit Graphics is a great way to showcase all your sports and athletes, and subscriptions are for 12 months and include unlimited graphics. Also, if you check out our Twitter feed today and see the graphic that we posted with this episode link for Coach Rowe, that entire graphic was created by me in just a few minutes with GoEdit. I picked the pictures I wanted to use, changed the colors and the text to what I wanted the graphic to say and look like, and bam, I'm done. So the process is super easy and user-friendly. And just like last season, mention Keep Your Pads Down when you're ordering and receive $25 off your showcase yearly package. Highlight your athletes with custom-made graphics in less than two minutes with GoEdit Graphics. All right, so today, as I already mentioned, we are crossing another state off our list as we talk with Western Michigan defensive line quality control coach, Coach Casey Rowe. And Coach Rowe just got to Kalamazoo earlier this winter after spending last season as a defensive line coach at Anderson University. Prior to that, Coach Rowe spent some time as a high school coach in his home state of Indiana at Crown Point High School and Bishop Lewers High School. 
Coach Rowe grew up in Northeast Indiana and played football at Trine University in Angola, Indiana. And today, Coach and I discuss his coaching career, things he's learned since arriving at Western Michigan, how the Broncos utilize movements and twists, and how they coach those up. We also get into pass rush, and Coach shares with us some data that he's dug up this winter through clinics with other coaches and some of his own film breakdown that I think you guys will really find interesting. Of course, we close out our conversation by uh, by putting Coach Rowe through the our rapid fire segment where I asked the former offense and defensive lineman, which side of the ball is harder to play? I don't know, guys. What do you think? Well, we'll see what he says. So there's a ton of great stuff in this one today. So let's get to it. Here's Coach Casey Rowe on episode number 127 of KYPD. Coach Rowe, welcome to the podcast. I think this is the first time we've had a coach who was coaching in the state of Michigan on the podcast. I had to go back and check and make sure, get my uh, statisticians, my, my fact checker people, which is me, uh, to check that, to verify that. But I'm pretty sure this is our first uh, active coach from the state of Michigan. So uh, it's a state near and dear to my heart. It's where my father-in-law is from. So welcome, welcome to the podcast, Coach. Hey, I appreciate it, Coach. I'm excited. And yeah, it's uh, <laughs> haven't been in Michigan for long, but definitely in in the heart and soul of Michigan right now. So you're you're from Indiana. Is there a rivalry between Indiana and Michigan? Is that is that like like around you know in the South? You do have some some kind of intrastate rivalries. Is there a rivalry between Indiana and Michigan, or is it more Ohio and Michigan? Yeah, so I, mean, I think when you talk about rivalries, especially at the college level, you obviously talk about Ohio State and Michigan. Um, and then Indiana's big rival is in-state with Indiana, Purdue. Um, you know, that's kind of a big thing. Um, and in the grand scheme, like, especially when you talk about football between Indiana and Michigan, there's not a huge, I mean, there's a pretty big difference in competition. You know, Michigan historically pretty strong. Indiana's had a couple of good years. Um, but you like take it down to the high school level and it's not, it's not a huge thing just because it, the way that Indiana high school schedules themselves you don't get a lot of opportunity for out-of-conference players, especially going out of state to play or anything like that. So um, obviously everybody hears about Michigan and Ohio State, but when it comes to Indiana, it's mostly just you know, Indiana and Purdue, Purdue-Notre Dame, those kind of rivalries that exist within the state versus outside of the state. Okay, yeah, and that's that's kind of – I know the uh, – you know, we're all familiar with, you know, with, with the rivalries between Ohio State, Michigan, and uh, between – you know, Notre Dame and Michigan, and, and I'm, I'm sure there's the interstate rivalry between, you know, like you said, Purdue and Indiana and, and even Notre Dame, those schools. Okay, so you're in Michigan now. We're going we're gonna to back up and talk about your background here in a second, but I want to ask this because I know, here's what I know about Michigan. It's a mitt, right? It's shaped like yep. a mitt. Where is Kalamazoo on the mitt? Help me, help me out here. I'm terrible at Michigan geography. So I would say if you hold your hand up, just like that mitt right there, and like – Put your finger in the on the palm over by your thumb, and like yeah, right okay. in that area. Okay, um, it would be my best way to put it. Straight west of Detroit, a couple few hours, not too far. So like where I'm from in Indiana, I'm only an hour and twenty minutes away from there. So it's not too too far north into Michigan, and we're only probably a forty five minute drive from the beach to Lake Michigan. So oh wow, wow, okay. it's definitely 
I mean, we're talking Southwest Michigan, not necessarily yeah. just Western yeah. Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so enough about enough about geography and, and state rivalries. Let's let's talk about you, Coach Rowan, and sort of just back us up a little bit and talk to us about growing up in Indiana and what that was like. I have no clue. I've never, never been in, never set foot in Indiana. I, I need to change that. I need to cross that state off my list, but so far I haven't done that. So tell us about what it was like growing up and just sort of your football journey up to this point. Absolutely. And I think most anybody that's going to talk about the state of Indiana, the subject's going to be basketball. Indiana is a basketball state, right? Um, but the guys that I played with in the area that I'm from, we were just a group of football players. We played other sports and we were baseball players. Some guys played basketball, some guys wrestled. But where I'm from, me and my friends, we were football players and uh, didn't come from a super competitive high school. But we come from a land that, you know, the county that we grew up in had 101 lakes. So a lot of lakes. And if it wasn't lakes, it was farm. So very rural area. You know, the high school that I went to, there were seven towns that made up our school district. In the whole school district, there was one caution light. No stoplights and just one caution light. And that caution light was right out by our school. So, um, you know, rural area where everybody knows everybody and, you know, generally everybody likes each other. Um, it's just that homey feeling. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's always gonna be a special place to me, right? It's where I'm from and my, it's where my family's still at. My daughter still lives in Indiana right now. Um, you know, my mom has moved to Tennessee. My dad actually does live in Michigan as well, but you know, a large majority of my family's still in Indiana as well. So special place to this guy. So you go on and play college football. Talk about what that process was like and then how you made that jump from playing college ball to being a coach, what was that? How, you know, where did that decision come from? Did you, did you always know you wanted to be a coach? How did that come about? Yeah, so my journey was a different one, um, a different different from a lot of guys that I share an office with now and I'm around right now. Um, you know, my junior year of high school, I originally committed to Ball State, um, and then had a, an injury in wrestling. Um, and then I, long story short, I ended up playing Division three football. Out of college, I went to a Division three school called Manchester University, um, was there for one semester, and then I transferred to Trine University, where I ultimately graduated from, um, <clears throat> was able to play there as well. But then upon graduation, I actually got into work in corporate America and also coached high school football on the side. So I was, you know, I was a high school coach, but I wasn't a teacher. I wasn't in the school all day. You know, I, I worked my job. Um, I was in financial services worked my job and then I you know I went to practice and so that journey itself kind of took me to different places from a coaching perspective it wasn't something that like oh man I just knew I was born to be a coach it was something I knew I loved the game of football and I loved giving back and I loved being around you know the next generation especially you know the steps that led me through high school and the mistakes that I made um and you know just other things where you guys you, you see that guys need a little bit of guidance and guys need a presence in their life that's somebody they can count on and that's where my love for the coaching side of it came in. And it gave me an opportunity to stay around football, which is the largest plus ever. But so my first job was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, you know, I sent a few emails to some of the high school coaches there in the area. Just saying, hey, you know, I just graduated from trying, played football there, planning on getting, you know, just want to try coaching. Um, and that landed me at Bishop Lures. Um, So my first fall at Lures. And Lewis is a pretty pretty well known program. Um, Jalen Smith is a is a Bishop Lewis graduate. Uh, he played for the Cowboys. Um, now he's with the Giants. 
Um, Anthony Spencer, another uh, Cowboys defensive end, um, he's a Bishop Lewis graduate. Um, so it, uh, a pretty storied program. Um, you know, my first fall there, uh, my daughter's born August 21st. So essentially, it was you know, was there through the summer, but then stepped away to, to have a newborn and do that whole do that whole thing. You know, be a dad more important. Um, but then, you know, the off season came. I was able to get on board and go through the full year with them. And so in the fall of 2018, which was like my second year there technically, um, you know, we advanced the semi-state game, uh, lost to West Lafayette in semi-state. And now you talk about D-line play, West Lafayette had a pretty damn good senior defensive end that year. His name is George Karloftis, who um, a lot of people project to go in the top 15 of this year's NFL draft. Um, so kind of fitting how that kind of worked into tonight's conversation, I guess, but uh, we lost to them. And then my career outside of coaching took me to Northwest Indiana. Um, I had the opportunity to go manage a financial services firm over in Northwest Indiana in the Chicago land area. So much the same, you know, when I took the job in Fort Wayne, you sent a couple emails said, Hey, you know, I played at Trine. Now the last two years I've been coaching at Bishop Lewers. Um, you know, what, what are the, what are the options? What are the availabilities? Whatever. I ended up coaching the defensive line at Crown Point High School. It's a 6A program, which 6A is the biggest in Indiana. Um, I was able to be the varsity defensive line coach for two years there as well. Um, lost in the sectional championship my first year and then um, lost in the second round of sectionals my second year there. Um, nothing crazy, no big long runs or anything cool to really talk about. Um, I think the neatest thing about coaching football at Crown Point High School was that we played the oldest rivalry in Indiana high school football with uh, us and Lowell high school um, had played since the earliest date, whatever, like 120 some odd matchups or something. So that was a pretty cool thing to be able to be a part of and kind of take in and, you know, being new to the area, seeing how much love was put into that game and how much attention was put into that game was really neat. Um, So at the end of my second year there, I mean, I guess middle of second year is when COVID happened and COVID made me loathe the financial services industry. Um, I was in a really good place professionally, um, was one of the youngest managers in this Fortune 500 company's history. You know, I was doing a lot of good things in that sense, but it was, just wasn't fulfilling for me anymore. So that's when I made a decision like, hey, like I wanna go coach football, but I wanna do this as a profession. I wanna take this leap and, and go do this thing the right way. Um, you know, started applying for a couple different college jobs um, actually went through the hiring process one time um, with a different school prior to going to Anderson. Um, didn't end up working out at the end, but then it's weird how this, the whole connection process works when it comes to coaching football. The guy who was my defensive line coach at Trine actually was the defensive line coach at Anderson at the time. And I reached out to him. We'd stayed in contact throughout the years. Um, the mentor of mine still to this day. We still stay in contact, obviously. But reached out to him and you know, kind of just told him what had happened with the with the last position, whatever. Um, he said, actually, we have a linebacker's position open right now. I can get you in contact with our DC, that, the whole whatever. And so that process kicked off. Um, so originally at Anderson, I got hired as the linebacker's coach. And I had been there for like two weeks. And then my D-line coach, our D-line coach at Anderson, left to go back to Trine and go be the D-line coach there again, which thus opened the defensive line job at Anderson. So I just bumped down from linebackers to coach the D line there. 
And you know, it's fitting for me. I played defensive line. I actually started my college career as an offensive lineman, but played defensive line in college and coached defensive line for four years at that point. So it was a lot easier for me from a knowledge base and just from a up to speed, um, easiest easier to get up to speed with a position that I was already familiar with. Um, and then, you know, so I got hired there in June of last year. Um, you know, went through went through the fall. We we struggled. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a great year. Um, from a wins and losses perspective, I saw a lot of growth in the guys. And then, you know, I had originally taken a job at, at an FCS level school in Louisiana. Um, and then I was presented with the opportunity to come up to Kalamazoo and get on the staff and, and do the quality control role here at Western Michigan. Um, and so I decided to take that leap. It was actually ended up being closer than Anderson's campus was, even though Anderson's in Indiana. Um, so that's what got me up to this point. And like I said, I mean, I've been here for, for seven weeks now, so still pretty fresh, but an exciting thing to go from, you know, in 12 months time, go from coaching high school football to being part of an FBS football program. Yeah, that is a, uh, that, that is a really cool thing. And, and, uh, to be able to, to work your way up like that, I guess, when you look back on how you're able to kind of make the jump from high school to you know, Anderson, now Anderson to Western Michigan. I know you talked about you had those connections there with a, with a former coach, but like what else do you credit? Or, or you know, if you're given, if you were given someone advice who's trying to make those jumps and, you know, the, the next leap ahead in their profession, like what advice would you give? What do you credit for what kind of helped you make those moves? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing, without a doubt, is you have to love the game. Um, if you just enjoy – Friday nights or Saturday afternoons. It college coaching is not for that that type of person. Um, you just got to be committed to working hard. And like you know, we we're saying, you know, don't count hours. Don't don't count hours because you're never going to feel like you're getting out of it what you're putting into it. But you know, for example, you know, I just got home from the office prior to jumping on here with you. Um, you know, it's Wednesday, and I count hours just because it's a thing in my head, but you know, from Monday to now, I've already worked, I've been at the office for 40 hours this week. So I mean, it's a grind, but in the grand, we are in the middle of spring ball right now. So, um, you know, we have practice tomorrow morning. We have practice Monday and Tuesday, but you just have, you just have to love it and let your work ethic speak for itself at that point, because at the end of the day, I mean, I'm not a power five position coach, you know, where you have all sorts of resources, you have GAs and stuff working for you. You're the person doing that work to, to prove to the people above you that you can and, and you're willing to do it. And that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it exciting. And, you know, I, now having the opportunity to coach in the MAC, which in my opinion is the most competitive conference in all of college football week in and week out. And in the fall, it's going to be a great time and it's a, it's a blessing. Um, but from now to then, just got to prove that I'm going to work and continue to work hard and, and do everything it takes. So you just got on campus uh, about seven weeks ago. You said, what, what's, what are those seven weeks been like? And just walk us through, you, know, you, you said you mentioned you're in spring ball. Uh, walk us through a typical day there for you, like what, when your day starts, what, are, what some of your responsibilities are, kind of the things that you do throughout the day. Yeah, so we've been in spring ball now for three weeks. Now, granted, our, our guys were off last week um, because of spring break at the college. So we had two weeks of practice and they were off for a week. And now this is technically week four. But so the first three weeks, three and a half weeks I was here was just very much of me trying to dive into the new, the new technology things that I wasn't used to, you know, coming from small division three college, we used huddle. 
Um, we use the first down playbook. You know, we, we use those types of resources. Whereas now we use DV sport for film, which is much more complex and much deeper. Um, you know, using Visio to do drawings and different things. It's a massive system. It's something that I had to try to learn from essentially scratch. Um, whereas, you know, we use first down playbook to do scout cars and those types of things. Now using Visio to draw anything and everything. So it's a learning curve there. And also just trying to understand and learn the defensive scheme and, and those types of things. So I could be an asset in that sense early on in spring ball as well. So that's how I spent the first three, three and a half weeks is just trying to dive into those things. Um, but then as soon as spring ball kicked off, you know, our days obviously got longer, but, you know, a normal spring ball day for, for me and for you know, us is um, you're generally in the office between 5.30 and 6 o'clock. Um, team meeting is going to be at 7. So from 6 to 7, doing a lot of organizing of things, just making sure that scripts and everything are prepared. Um, me personally, the last couple of weeks, especially as we have a gap in between our director of on-campus recruiting role, um, I've done a lot of stuff with the recruiting side for the defensive side of the ball. So I usually do that kind of stuff between six and seven. Um, and then we'll have a team meeting at seven. And then O&D unit meetings are going to be at 710. And then position meetings will usually start at 730. And then on practice days, guys are outside by 830. Um, we have more, not outside, we have an indoor. Um, and usually into our indoor facility by 830. Um, you know, we'll practice until 11. And then the QCs and GAs and everybody, we're going to run inside. Literally, we don't even stay outside for the, the head coach's huddle. Um, we go inside to get the film broke down and get everything inputted um, and try to get that done by 12. So in that one-hour window to get, you know, every rep that we took in team or seven-on-seven seven inside run, anything like that, um, get that all tagged and everything prepared. So at 12, when the full time, when the full defensive staff comes together, us and, you know, the position coaches, D coordinator, everybody, to sit down and watch the film it's already prepared for that and that's generally i mean a couple two three hour process um to start watching practice from start to finish and then mid-afternoon gets there and now it's time to start preparing for tomorrow and getting scripts and everything prepared um and you know there's obviously odds and ends that fall into there but i can confidently say that you know you go 13 14 hours in a, in a work day and there's not a lot of downtime. You know, there's there's always tasks to be done. Um, so generally, you know, we'll be out of the office sometime between seven and eight in the evening. Um, you know, go grab a bite to eat, go home, go to bed, and do it all over again the next day is, I guess, the the most normal day. But Wednesdays and Fridays are a little bit different because we don't practice on Wednesdays or Fridays. So today, um, more recruiting heavy in the afternoon, uh, preparing any kind of new installs, those kind of things usually are are done on non-practice days just so it gives the staff more time to sit down and actually talk about it. Um, and then Friday, probably a little bit of a slower day in theory this week just because we have a junior day Saturday along with the spring practice. So Saturday is going to be a big long day. Yeah, so definitely, a uh, like you said, it's it's one of those things where you got to be in it for the right reasons or or you can burn out quick because we're talking about that's your schedule in March, right? Like not in the middle of, uh, of the fall in a game week. Um, so it is, it is something that, like you said, and, and, I, and I even, even coaches on the high school level are working, working long hours and it may be, um, you know, coaching a second sport or, or um, you know, yeah. hand, handling things that, that just go along with coaching high school ball. It's just as a coach in general, it is one of those things. You have to be in love with the, the whole process and the entirety of it because, what happens on a sideline on Friday night or on Saturday afternoon is a very, very minute part of 
actual what right. actual coaching football is. Um, all right, well let's 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 talk about that defensive front there at Western Michigan. I'm just curious, like you know, so when you get there, um, talk to me about you know what what front you guys are running and what kind of adjustment that was. Like, all right, here I, I got to learn the scheme and I got to learn terminology. So just talk about that and what you guys are doing up front defensively. Uh, we're we're in a, we are predominantly in a forefront. Um, for a forefront is definitely our base, and you know, thankfully. Being an Anderson, that's what we ran. Now, granted, there's a lot more layers that go into it here. Um, but I think the biggest thing that stood out from a scheme perspective, and I granted, again, I use Division One football, but I watched film of these guys, you know, prior to my first practice with these guys. And I made the comment to our DC. I was like, hey, man, like, these guys look plain. Like, they look normal. They look like normal-sized dudes. And then I go into my first indie meeting with the defensive ends, like, yeah, like they all look the same, but they're all six foot five and 270 pounds, you know, like it's, it's, it's different. So that's been like, that was the coolest thing for me, you know, is coming from, I was a division three football player, um, you know, coaching the division three level and coaching at the high school level and had a, having never coached. I mean, I, I sent a couple guys to scholarship schools, but never do a division one school. So just a different caliber of defensive lineman, which is the, the reason I think that we're able to get away with, you know, the movements and the pressures and different stuff that we do just because it's a big physical brand of football, but we have the guys that can do it. And, you know, so coming into this forefront where, you know, our, both of our defensive ends, 6'4", 6'5", 270, 280 pounds, you know, our, our three techniques, a 6'5", 300-pound guy, and then our nose, actually a smaller guy. Um, he's only about 6'3", 280. But it's just like these big dudes who are, who, who are moving around a ton, super athletic which puts us in a good situation to get into a lot of movements and get into some pressures and, and do a lot of things, drop some ends into coverage and, and just even have our nose drop into coverage a little bit in different situations. So um, it allows us to be very, I would call, I guess call it multiple up front um, as an offensive lineman to prepare for this defensive line unit and this defensive style has to be hard just because there's so much stuff that happens and it happens on first down, second down, third down, you know, there's, no bias, you know, it's, it's not something that we're going to dial up pressures on third and long. And that's it. Like it's stuff that, um, you know, coach Espo, our defensive coordinator is actually our, also our defensive ends coach, um, doesn't hesitate to dial some stuff up and it's really cool to see. Okay. I'm going to ask this question. This, this is kind of a, a sidebar question, but I'm asking this for, uh, I'm on a, a text thread with some other D line coaches, uh, that I know. And they're, you know, we, it's a, it's a, you know, we cover a lot of stuff on that thing, you know, where it, we'd be talking about D-line play and, and just life stuff. And, and so this is a question that came up in that thread this week, and everyone's kind of had their own opinion, so I'll throw it over to you. Um, where do you guys play your nose? Is he a shade or is he in a two-eye, or do you play them both, and what's the, what's the reasoning behind it? Yes, base-wise base is a two-eye. Um, there'll be certain calls and certain fronts or – kind of you know cheated alignments that will that'll bring him down to a shade. Um, but the base is a two eye. And I think, you know, a lot of times you see gap scheme defenses or sorry, gap scheme offenses and pullers and you know a lot of that type type of stuff. And we want to have our guy have the opportunity to get hands on the pulling guard and hands on and kind of just disrupt any of that kind of flow. It's easier to do that from a two eye. Right. And also if you're going to penetrate and, and try to shoot gaps, anything like that it's going to be harder for a center to back block you if you're a little bit further away from him. Whereas if you're in the shade, it's a natural block for him, a two eye. Um, even if he knows where the plays 
like the play, obviously he's going to you know, any kind of pin in full action or anything like that. He knows it, but if we're shooting up field, it's going to make it more hard or more hard. That's not, I don't think that's how you're supposed to say that, but tougher for him. Yeah. And, and um, you know, there's someone who's listening to this and they're, they're yelling at, at the, uh, at their, at their listening device, wherever they're, they're taking in this podcast about why a shade is better or why, you know, countering all your arguments. I do. Uh, in the, in, in years past, we do, we do base out of a shade, but we'll jump into two eye pretty, pretty quickly. And, and I, and I, as a coach, I like a two eye. Um, I think it's better for double teams as well. Um, you know, that center still has to snap the ball and get his head up. And, you know, uh, I feel like when you're in that shade, that guard can really just tee off on that hip. And, and so, that's that's another reason uh, why I, I like the two eye better. I just think it makes it um, a little easier for him to hold that gap. So you you guys, as you've already kind of alluded to, you like to do a lot of movements and and twist games with your guys and and things like that. So where where does that? What's the the thought process behind that? Um, I, I'm sure you guys are trying to generate confusion and and put pressure on the offense. So just talk about the mentality behind that and and. Uh, why you guys like to twist and, and do so much movement with your D-line? Yeah, I think, in, in my opinion, um, it's the best way to even the playing field with an offensive line. Because as a defensive line coach, you preach to your guys, watch the ball, right? And the offensive line already knows the snap count. That's a pretty big advantage for an offensive lineman. Now, granted, you can have the greatest get-off in the world, but in theory, you're still supposed to be a half-step behind because that guy knows the snap count. However, if you're moving, whether it's a single gap movements or two gap movements or gap and a half movements, anything like that, it's keeping him guessing a little bit. And I think that evens the playing field as far as just as simply get off into that first contact. Um, if you're a defense that's going to sit in a base formation and go forward every time, it's going to make that offensive lineman that much more comfortable with his blocking scheme on any given play. But if you're consistently showing you're moving a gap over, two gaps over, anything like that, I feel like it's just the easiest way to even that playing field with the offensive line from a schematic standpoint, just because sure they know the snap count, but they have no idea where you're going. And I think that's, that's a big deal. So how are you guys, um, how do you guys, uh, how are you guys coaching up movements, you know, with things like stance and keys and aiming points? Do you have different variations of slants and movements? You know, like, like we've talked about, you know, single gap, gap and a half, two gap, are there, is those their technique different techniques involved with all of those? Like, how are you coaching up uh, movements with your guys? Yeah, so it's I mean, it's an indie thing for us every day. Um, we have the two the two things the two first periods of indie because we break up each period of indie in its own separate period. It's not just period three is a twenty minute indie. We have period three, four, five, and six. So you know those first two periods are sled get offs, hip you know just hip explosion is the first one, but then we're always going to go to movements with bags and you work on a one gap movement, a two gap movement, getting, getting lateral, but also gaining ground on any kind of long stick movement. Um, but it's just something that's preached every day. Now, granted from a, you know, I don't I think there's not really a ton of different footwork that goes into it other than, you know, a single gap move is shorter and you know, you're not going to open up as much. You're not going to get as horizontal with that step. But you're not telling guys that, okay, so if you're doing this, this is the footwork. If you're doing this, this is the footwork. If you're doing this, this is the footwork. It's more so those two things, those two options. Um, where we do get a little bit into things is we're not going to say we don't cheat alignments, right? I think that's not the right word. 
but we're going to put ourselves in an alignment that's going to be advantageous. So even if, I mean, if you're in a three and going to the A, you're still going to stay in a three, but you might be a little bit tighter. Um, and again, I'm sure if you look at it like hard enough on film, maybe you see that. Um, but there's also different times where they do it on purpose and then stay in the B. So like you try to, you know, cover yourself up, call it. Um, so, you know, we'll talk about alignments and, you know, getting a little tighter here, a little looser here, um, you know, back to back away. That's a big thing too. You know, if, uh, backs away, be a little bit looser, if backs to be a little bit tighter. Um, but that's just, I mean, I think that's the normal game plan stuff. Um, but getting those practices instilled in guys in the spring and fall camp gets here and it's normal. You kind of talked about with, with, um, you know, that there's not a whole lot of difference in the footwork between different types of movements. How are you coaching things differently for, let's just say, a tackle going to the A-gap as opposed to a defensive end long sticking into the A-gap? What's the difference there and how you're coaching those guys and their, you know, maybe their steps or their shoulders or things like that? Yeah, so I think single-gap movements, I think you have more freedom to be th- a little bit more thick. Obviously, you always want to throw hands. Throw your hands. Your hips are going to follow your hands. Get your hands on your target, um, and your hips are going to come. So a single gap movement, more so throwing hands and getting a little bit thicker through through your man and working through that gap. Um, but if you have a two gap movement, your shoulders probably going to turn a little bit. Obviously, we want you to stay square. It's the goal every time we want guys to stay square to the line of scrimmage. But it's also not realistic to think that you're moving, you know, five feet, six feet of real estate, um, especially if gaps are moving away from you you're going to have to turn those shoulders a little bit, dip and rip, get inside and, and sit down if you can. I found that's the hardest part of it being a defensive lineman is you were trying to do anything, any kind of long movement and still maintain a gap once you get there and not getting caught in the wash is the hardest thing in the world. You know, if you, if you're long sticking into a, a zone scheme going the same direction you're trying to go, you're putting yourself in a tough situation. Um, but getting there, getting low and, and getting back to square. So you have a base underneath yourself. Yeah, that is tough when when you are uh, long sticking into a, a zone away from you, and you got to really get flat and, and work and just try to try to get a crease as much as you can. Um, so, just in general, like we're not talking about slanting now, um, with your guys, especially your interior guys, um, do you allow them to to cross? Like, let's take your nose guard for example. Do you allow him to cross face? Um, like, if he's getting blocked back by the center, do you allow him to cross face? Uh, into the other a gap or is that one of those things hey stay in your gap until you know we want you to get into that other a gap we'll tell you based on the movement or something that we call uh, how do you play with that guy uh, in particular in relation to his uh his gap yeah so everything's single gap responsibility um if, if we want you there we're going to move you there if we don't move you there stick around until you know, if the ball breaks the line of scrimmage there's business to be had go make the play but in general if, if, you're, if your responsibility is the A-gap, live in the A-gap. Be present in the A-gap. Keep your outside hand free in the A-gap. Keep your helmet in your A-gap. Um, you see guys, especially at, at, at a lot of levels, it, you know, Crown Point, we saw some dudes who were Division One running backs. We saw dudes who were Division Two running backs. You see dudes with good vision. Um, you don't want to be the guy that gets exposed on film because you're supposed to be in the A-gap. You get too thick. You start to peek over the center opens up just that smallest cutback lane, and then you get on the headset, oh, where'd that hit us? A-gap. Who's supposed to be there? Our nose. Why wasn't he? 
because he's peaking. And so when everything's gapped out responsibly, stay there, hang out there, do your thing, move your feet and try to collapse and, and, and you know, move space, but stay present in your gap. Yeah, I think that's that's really, really important for that for that nose guard, you know, because um, if he does jump out of there, you know, that Mike's got the other A gap. There's really no one back there to kind of cover for him. You know, he takes another A gap. The linebacker behind him is kind of screwed. On the other side, you know, however you're playing your linebackers, the three tech gets an A gap. It's a little bit easier job for him to now take the B gap. It's just, it just kind of works out, works itself out a little bit easier. But yeah, when you start getting guys just pinballing around, that can be a really dangerous thing because now it makes the linebackers play a little more tentatively and they're not really sure exactly where to fit. So it's the same thing I would tell linebackers and defensive line guys. If you're going to be wrong, be wrong in your gap. You know, yeah. um, if, if that's, if that's what we do, if, if we're playing in our gap, then, then, you know, it's really hard to fault you. Um, you're right. You know, when it's, when that running back is now, even with the line of scrimmage, I could cross face and, and add myself to the play, but we're not counting on that nose guard to cross face and make the play in the other a gap. Um, you know, if he does great, that's awesome. He's a dude. But, you know, we don't I want to, like, to piggyback off of what you're saying. Thankfully, we're in a position we had two linebackers return this year who are all conference guys. So generally speaking, they're going to make guys right. You know, they're they're going to see that. But it especially gets sticky when if there's any kind of pressure coming and you flow into the wrong gap. And then you have then you're, you have two guys in one gap and you don't have the chance to have somebody behind you to make it right until you get to the third level. And that's when you run into trouble. So you know, there's, there's guys behind you. There's going to be good linebackers. There's a lot of schools that are going to have the, the chance to make those defensive line guys right. But, you know, if we want – and we want to think, I think the, the consensus of the staff is the defensive line is one of the strong points. If they do their job, we're going to be in pretty good shape. So do your job and let the chips kind of fall where they go. Yeah, for sure. What you talked about working some of these movements on bags and then and also doing some stuff on the sled. What are some other drills that you guys – are really liking right now, especially in the spring. You know, I, I love spring ball. I love this time of year because you can really get back to work and fundamentals. So, what are some some of those drills that you you guys have been hitting hard uh, this spring? Yeah. So one of the big ones. So like obviously we we do this. We do going to do the sled. You know, with our get offs every day, um, and we're going to do movements with our agiles with bags every day, um, and then most days defensive ends, defensive tackles will will separate and do different block recognition drills whether it's with, you know, a hand shield or if it's just with bodies, um, just getting guys used to those movements and knowing because we do so much moving up front, you know, how, how do we counter this block if we're moving this direction? So just a lot of block recognition stuff is important. Um, and then, you know, so a, a little backstory, but just defensively, um, we led the MAC in sacks last year. We were top 10 nationally in sacks per game. So, um, you know, average three, three point three a game defensively, sack wise. So, pass rushing is a big passion of our defensive coordinator. He's a defensive ends coach, you know. So we're going to do a lot of stuff that involves that too. Um, get offs, takeoffs, bends, hoop drills, um, just just anything to get guys in those positions where they're going to be able to take that to a Saturday afternoon and win a pass rush as well. Um, we hit those multiple times a week as well. You know, everybody kind of has their own little way of of coaching pass rush. You know, like when you're talking about sort of those drills you were talking about at the very beginning, I think I say most people, um, you know, and I, I don't want to say most people, but a lot of people kind of follow that same progression, right? Like hit the sled, do some sled work, um, you know, get offs and things like that. That's that's all pretty standard 
but I, I've, I've found that when, when you get to pass rush, that that's when things kind of um, guys kind of have their own little way of doing things, which is awesome. You know, there's a million ways to skin a cat. How, how, how what's, what's sort of the approach or the philosophy uh, with your coaches there, that coaching staff there on rushing the passer, you know, how, how are y'all coaching that up, particularly with your, with your outside guys, um, as far as, you know, uh, just, just their stance or steps and, and th things they're looking for. How, how are you, how are you coaching that up? Yeah. So I think the, the big thing that is that would be the takeaway is um, he doesn't necessarily call it a three-step rule, but that's kind of how I would portray it to people is call it a three-step rule. So especially from defensive ends, you're going to get three steps on the ground. And after that third step, get that inside toe pointed towards the quarterback, start getting that bend. If you haven't won to won that edge, then it's time to go speed power, counter underneath, whatever the case may be. But you have those first three steps. And um, something that we've talked about now in the last week, um, just because we talk about footwork, right? But our guys, our, our full-time guys went out and, and clinicked at UMass with Coach Don Brown um, last week. And a stat came up that I think this is a good one to put in your group chat right now and see if you can get anybody to answer correctly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. And the question is this. On average, how many steps does it take to sack a quarterback? And I was I was wrong. I guessed five or six. And um, because this isn't going to air like right away, I guess I don't suppose like I can I can tell you what the answer is right now unless you want to guess. Let let me guess really quick. This is sort of like those old commercials, like how many licks does it take to get Right. In the middle of a uh, a tootsie pop. So you said seven or eight. All right, so I'll well, go. I, I went five or six. Oh, you went five or six. Okay, okay, I went, okay. I went five or six. Okay, so then I'll go. Yeah, I'll go seven. I'll go seven. Okay, so the, the average is twelve. What? And an elite NFL pass rusher, like an elite NFL pass rush, is eight steps to the quarterback. So we took that number. And watched film. We had the, the MAC defensive player of the year last year, um, had 13 sacks, and watched some 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 clips. And this dude would, had several clips where he just abused offensive tackles, just made them look silly. And his best rep, his best sack rep, was eight steps. And that's elite at the NFL level, but you just then you start thinking about it. You know, like when when we when we process it, it makes more sense because we talk about three steps. Um, three steps just to get to the to that the intersect point, and then from there you obviously have more steps to work and, and, and try to win. Um, but then you know, that number gets pushed up a little bit by covered sacks and guys who just work their tail off. You know, defensive tackles who are fighting through all sorts of mess and clean something up. Obviously, that number is higher than twelve, but the average is twelve. And I think that is something that we try to put into the practice now. Is okay. How do we? How do we get less than 12? But how do we make those those effective and understand that you're not going to win in five steps? But how do you keep fighting to win in 12 or less? And so we talk about three steps, get up field. But then if that shoulder's open, turn it into power. If a shoulder's still closed, get outside of him. If he oversets you, get underneath him. Work your first move. Work your first move a second time. And if it doesn't work, then talk about countering underneath or start working something different. because at any level, you know, if you're going to talk about a swipe or a punch over, 
or I guess an arm over, depending on, I, I call it a punch over, they call it an arm over, um, or just a rip, you know, some, some of the most basic stuff. The frequency that it works the first time, it, it, it's not really existent unless you're a dude in high school and you're in that Friday night, you have a, a guy that you're lined up against who's just not. And then sometimes like that first move's gonna work and it's gonna be great and it's gonna be a sack party and it's gonna be awesome. But anytime that we rep anything, even just going around the hoop, we're not gonna have our guys swipe once. We're gonna have our guys swipe three, four, five times. They're gonna continue to swipe and swipe and swipe all the way around the hoop because you have to beat hands. We have to continuously beat hands because as an offensive lineman, you get your hands beat once, you're shooting them right back. You're not just gonna let them continue to win hands down so i think that's a, the big thing too is just continue to fight with those hands continue to keep hands off you um and then understanding just the film study when it comes time to game plan what do those guys do um as far as sets wise and you know, what are they good at what do they try to go to um and and work on craft and defeat that too you know that is pretty like now that i'm thinking about it, it's kind of kind of uh groundbreaking for me i'm just sitting there thinking okay 12 steps you know, how much space or how much time as, as I coached pass rush did I devote to those first three steps and not coach up those final, you know, you're talking about possibly nine steps, you know, um, and I think that's a that's a trap that we can fall into. You know, you talked about going around the hoop with kind of the, the continuous, whether you got those little arm arm uh, shields or whatever that you're, you're kind of messing with your guys with. I mean, um, I think that's a great way but to, to work it, but I think that's probably one of those things that gets under coach when it comes to pass rush is that beyond the three steps, right? Those initial three steps, mm -hmm. because I know as a high school coach, we see this all the time. The kid's initial move doesn't work. And once he do, he shuts it down, right? Cause he doesn't yep. know what else to do, or he just buries his face in the chest of the offensive lineman. Cause he's out of moves. He doesn't know what else to do. Okay. My, my chopping rip didn't work or my, my club didn't work, you know, whatever didn't work. And so now um, I don't know what to do. So that's a, yeah. um, that's that's a great stat to have, and and also now you can go and and work that with those guys. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, like Coach Espo is going to stress the heck out of those first three steps, and the the biggest takeaway, yeah, of course, from the third steps is the third one, right? So you want to make sure that toe is pointed towards the quarterback on your third step. Obviously, if your man hands down, your first steps getting you getting you back to even. Your second steps upfield. Your third step is the one where you're trying to get that behind the, the, the tackle's foot or behind the guard's foot or hip to hip, whatever your aiming point is, but get that foot and get those toy, the toes pointed towards the quarterback and then throw that outside hand because that's going to bring the hips with it. And it looks so goofy to me when I watch people do it, even though I know the purpose, but it's so practical and something that guys can take with them at any level that when you're rushing the quarterback and trying to bend that hoop, throw your outside hand, because again, your hips are going to follow your hands. If you're throwing your hands across your face, your hips are going to have to follow. That's just how your body works. So you'll see our guys finish with that every time. They're going to go around the hoop. And as they're winning that hoop, they're going to throw that outside hand to make sure they're getting the hips back to square and they're going to finish tight. Yeah. And, and to go back to what you said, you're right. I mean, the if you don't have a good first three steps, initial steps, then it's over for you anyway. So yeah, this isn't 12 aren't going to matter. Yeah, this isn't to discredit those guys, I mean, myself or anybody else who's who's spent a lot of time on the get-off because that is crucial, especially um, when you're talking edge guys in a pass rush. But, again, now I'm just thinking that, that I probably could have done a lot more in, the, in, in just working those last steps and the finish of it because that can sometimes get lost in the wayside. You know, it looks really pretty coming off and hitting that, you know, and, and then yeah. finishing on the bag kind of 
but you know, pretty boy knocking the pop over over and trotting back to the line of scrimmage. And that yeah. could be, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. And being relentless is one of those, I think, just underrated components that you have to have. Yeah. No, you have to. I, I, I say this openly, and I said this at Anderson, I said this at the high school level, I'll say this to guys now. A good defensive lineman doesn't become great without a bad attitude or bad intentions. And then vice versa, if you're already great, you don't become elite unless you have that just that relentless mentality. And you guys that just refuse to lose, and, and sure, it can get frustrating. It can wear on you. And if you're if you're struggling through two quarters or three quarters of football and you haven't been able to win consistently, sure, it's going to bother you. But keep fighting because eventually you're going to get free and eventually you're going to get home. And I think that's one big takeaway is guys get so infatuated with stats, right? Stats, stats, stats. I want to I want to lead the country in sacks. I want to lead the conference in sacks, whatever. And you talk about the best season of all time when it comes to sacks. It's like 22 in the NFL. And the dude played 16 games. It's less than one and a half a game. You literally win one and a half times a game to set an all-time record and keep the relentless approach and keep that method method methodology and and get home once a game and you're going to be you're going to be among the nation's leaders once a game yeah and and then it's kind of like what we were talking about at the top of this of the conversation about how people sometimes who aren't coaches sort of condense coaching down to friday night and saturday afternoon and that's sometimes what people condense playing defense especially defensive end down to is just sacks right like one stat you know um and sure in the nfl like that's a pretty valuable dude to have who can go you know a joey bosa a, a tj watt you know those guys um you know that's that's kind of what they get paid paid to do right but um you know yeah. the guys that we're coaching high school college level it's it really is about affecting the quarterback and there's so many ways to do that besides just getting a sack do you guys work any drills that that work on or emphasize affecting the quarterback whether it's getting hands up or batting balls down uh, strip sacks talk about those a little bit yeah so if you walked into a defensive practice at western michigan university right like tomorrow morning when we take the field at 8 40 and we get we'll walk off the field by 11 o'clock and that two hour window you would hear a defensive staff member say the term match hands no less than a hundred times. So it's something that's preached every, so when we go to specialists, so we go, we come out and we'll do walkthrough and then we'll do specialists and we'll stretch during specialists. None of our guys are special. You know, we don't have any punters or kickers or anything in our defensive line group. So we go run the hoops during specialist period. And every time you finish running the hoop, you match hands. So you, you, you match that hand with the quarterback hand. Anytime you see that egg break or any type, whatever you want to call it, you see that quarterback start to go into a throwing motion. You match his hand. If you can't get there, get a hand in his throwing window, right? And it worked out really well that we're having this conversation about this right now just because today I spent a lot of time doing a study for our defensive staff about the percentage of our snaps or percentage of incomplete passes that were affected by just us matching hands, not necessarily pressuring the quarterback or getting a hit or a knockdown or anything like that, but just getting a hand in his throwing window. and it was over 25% of our incomplete passes against us last season were just as a result of matching hands that didn't touch the ball. It, it makes a quarterback overthrow. It makes a quarterback not, not feel comfortable stepping into his throw. It makes, it, it makes a quarterback pull it down 
and then go run out of the pocket. It, it just it does so much that if you can't get home, you're still having an effect on the play. And you'll hear it every day, hundreds of times a day, is match hands, match hands, match hands. Um, our defensive tackles coach, Coach Denham, great dude, heck of a football coach. Um, he just spoke last Friday at the Indiana Football Coaches Association, the high school coaches clinic. And that was one of the things he talked about, match hands. Um, Casey Zinner is, is a defensive graduate assistant for us, um, but heck of a football coach, great, great knowledge base. And he spoke at the Michigan Football High School Coaches Association. And one of the things he talked about, match hands. It's something that, like, if you talk to a Western Michigan defensive coaching staff person, they're going to talk about match hands because they believe it works. We believe it works. And it, it's you can see it, a direct correlation um, when you do those studies and, and look at those clips and seeing guys make a difference, not by getting home, but just getting a hand up. And that's the stuff that doesn't show up in a stat book, but and, and no one would ever know unless the quality control coach goes in and does a study right. and breaks that down. And so now, well, cause that's one of those things that like, if, unless you pull that out and show the guys that they're not going to buy into matching hands coach, you talking about matching hands. Nah, I'm trying to get a sack coach. Like, right. You know what I'm saying? But then when you're like, Hey, look, here's the deal. We're not asking you to go hit home. You know, once a game, sure. That's awesome. You can do that. Match hands and just make him throw up, throw a ball. You know, make him where he's 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 sailing the ball, or make him where it's he's throwing behind the receiver, in front of the receiver, whatever. And right. now you're like, oh, okay, so I can do that. I just need to get it, be be relentless enough, and be able to train myself to when I see that hand come up, like you said, that egg break. Now we're matching hands, and and that's another way. And I'm sure you guys probably have a way of rewarding those guys for doing that. And and uh, you know, when you can track that, but that's another really, um, I would say, probably an undercoached aspect of affecting the quarterback is just that that whole concept of matching hands. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, another thing that we've talked about, and these kind of go hand in hand with just the discipline and, and teaching guys to do the right thing, even though it's not going to show up, is, you know, the other Casey, Casey Zinner, did a study last week just about you getting hands on a reroute and what percentage of passes end up getting completed when the reroutes are done properly. And, again, it, like it's it just those things that don't show up in the stat sheet matter and you're going to see a guy who's going to get who's going to match hands cause an overthrow and one of the pretty guys in the secondary gets to have the interception his name goes in the paper his name goes in the stat sheet his highlight gets shown on espn but anytime you look at it and look deep into it there's a defensive lineman somewhere waiting in the wind who did something to affect that even though his name doesn't get printed and his picture doesn't get shown all that kind of stuff um it's, it's the little stuff like that that matters yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, again, being able to, to show that to those guys is, is, is gotta just be, that's, that's a great way to, to, to create that buy-in for that stat. And I'm, I'm stealing the uh, 12 steps number and going to use that uh, now with our guys. Cause I think that's just one of those things that, again, you asked me and I, I, I was way off in my guess and would not have, have, have guessed that it was that many steps. And I would imagine that a lot of these guys listening would not have guessed that number uh, either. So, you talked about how, you know, you've been really good at, at getting after the quarterback in years past. I know you weren't there last year, but what, what was uh, something that you guys maybe weren't quite as good at that you're really trying to improve on this spring as you head into next season? Yeah, I think the biggest focal point of the spring, especially, and I'm not sure if it's a direct correlation because it was a 
a struggle point last year, but something that we've struggled with early in spring and something that, you know, Coach Espo's, I mean, it's growingly and growingly more frustrated about, which makes total sense, is just running your feet on contact, right? So you want to have the best punch in the world. You want to bring your hips. I, I'm a firm believer. My, I live and I, I we, we, my guys at Anderson hurt them every day. My three H's of defensive line play are hands, hearts, and hips. Um, you got to play with great hands. You got to play with violent hips. And you got to play with a lot of heart. So, you know, you, you, we, we preach that first strike and getting hands on so much that sometimes it gets lost in the teaching progression that you got to keep those feet moving when you do it. Um, you're the best punch in the world only gets you so far. If you stop your feet, you're still, the offensive lineman is still going to eventually win. So a focal point of, of ours right now is, yeah, we want that good punch. But we want to keep those feet moving with it, um, you know, working towards your gap. And a lot of people will get complacent just thinking, okay, like I'm in my gap, my, you know, my helmet's in my gap. Um, I have separation. My inside hand is, you know, extended, you know, all that's good. So now take it the next step and continue to move your feet and collapse the space, shrink that space, put your man in the next gap over. So you have a free runner behind you, anything like that. That's the next step. So keep keeping those feet moving on contacts have been the big one so far this spring. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of those things on every level. It's something you have to continuously harp, um, you know, because I know for us, you know, whenever you watch guys going up against each other, probably one of the, you know, the uh, the the main things you hear coaches yelling at is feet, 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 run your feet, run your feet, run your feet. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's not that, it's get your hands inside. It's either hands or feet, you know, because guys generally come off hard at each other. Right. But they don't always. They're, they either get their hands outside, they don't get extension, or the big thing is, is they don't run their feet. They just try to, you know, country boy strong, you know, get a kid yep. locked out or something without running those feet. And, and uh, you know, obviously the saying, you know, dead feet don't eat or, or however you want to say it, but um, your feet die, you die, all those things. But that's definitely something I think that probably everybody uh, struggles with, um, at, you know, at one point or the other. Yeah, no, absolutely. We have some young guys that are even struggle with hand placement right now a little bit. Um, obviously, you know, our aiming point, whether it's the via the neck, chest plate, whatever you want to call it, um, it's important to you know, not only get your hand there, but have a thumb up, get your elbow inside. You don't want to, you don't want to have that chicken wing. You don't want to have the elbow up. Um, it's just talking about that with, like I said, like especially with the young guys who are still fairly new to this. Um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a pretty good spot right now. Or sure, we graduated, you know, the MAC Defensive Player of the Year, um, hoping to see him get called, get his name called, um, you know, late-round draft pick. Worst-case scenario, on draft free agent, but, you know, a hell of a football player. Um, and then our nose tackle, we, we just had Pro Day Monday. So both of those guys were back for Pro Day, and it was cool. We had 30, 30 of the 32 NFL teams were here. Um, so, you know, cool to see those guys go through workouts. But we're in a good spot knowing that, we still have two returning starters coming back. So experienced guys that are doing those things right consistently. Um, and I think that helps, when, especially when you watch film as a group, because you want to, you harp on these young guys, you harp on the inexperienced guys. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And then it, it helps correlate. You like you see Andre Carter or Marshawn Nealon, you know, guys who got a lot of reps last year, Braden Fisk, um, they're doing it. They're, they're doing those things we're telling you to do. And they're doing it on, on film on Saturday afternoons. It matters. And it helps solidify your coaching point 
when you can show it on film that the guys who are doing this on Saturday afternoons for us are doing it in practice and are doing it the right way. And I think it helps really set that point home. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And that's just one of those things like we talked about that and hand placement or some of those things that you just can never get away from as a D line coach. You always have to be harping and always have to be staying on it uh, because it's, it's not one of those things like, okay, we got this master. I never have to talk about it again. It's, it's always something that you have to incorporate into your drills and make sure you're making it a point of emphasis. Coach, we stumbled into some really great stuff there on pass rush. You know, when we kind of mapped out our conversation, I didn't, you know, I knew, I knew I'd ask you about it, but I didn't know we'd talk about it as much. So I thought that was some really great stuff there and some insightful stuff. But before we get you out of here today, I want to put you onto the gun a little bit and uh, ask you some rapid fire questions. And sometimes rapid fire may not be the best uh, name for this segment because this isn't necessarily, uh, you know, I don't know how rapid it is. But anyway, we'll ask you some questions here uh, to, to, to close this out. So you, you cool with that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, okay. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. Well, here we go. I'm going to put you under the gun right off the bat. You talked about you've played offensive line and defensive line. Which of the positions or the side of the, which side of the ball is more difficult to play? <laughs> that's, that's unfair almost. Okay. So it is, it is, it's an unfair question. You can't win either way. So I'll just kind of let you handle that however you want. I, so I'm going to, I'm going to back to this one, but I'm saying the offensive line is tougher to play because defensive linemen are better athletes. Yeah. I mean, no, and, that's, that's, that's a good way of putting it because you compliment the D line and then you also, yeah, I got, I got you. I'm giving credit to the offensive line guys who grind it out every day. But I think the only reason it's so complex and so hard to play offensive line is because the species of human being that's lined up across from them is just a whole different breed of person. You know, like yeah, to be an elite defensive lineman, you have to be kind of nutty. Yeah, and there's offensive line you have to try to block those guys every day. Like that's tough. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I don't think anyone. I don't even think the uh, the hardest core D line guys are gonna have an issue with that answer. Okay. Uh, you talked about how your day is it it is chock pretty full. Like it's. It's it's pretty pretty tight right now with with stuff going on. What's the 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 favorite part of your day? Like you really look forward to it, and it can be you know it doesn't have to be you know I know you may have some of your coaches listening to this, and you don't have to say well I love you know inputting practice film. I mean you you don't have to give us the uh, the political answer here. What's the your favorite part of your day that you really look forward to? Yeah, so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go take this two different directions. Um, the first one is practice. I, I practice is at the end of the day, like that's what be, that's what being a ball coach is all about, right? You talk about all the preparations and things that go into going to practice. That's almost our reward is be able to go out there, just be with the dudes and, and see all of that come to fruition. And then my second favorite thing, and it happens every day, generally between 11 and 1130, is my daughter FaceTimes me on her way home from school. That's my that's that's truly my favorite thing, um, my favorite time of the day, but that's not football related. So like, No, I yeah, have yeah. No, that's that's those are both great things. Yeah, uh, uh, practice is that's the thing. I love practice, and I know the and the thing is the kids usually don't love it or they're not as excited about it as you most of the time, especially down here in Texas when it's in August and it's a thousand degrees outside. And so you have to kind of kind of find ways to to get them going. But yeah, I really do enjoy practice as well, and obviously love uh, when my kids uh, when I get to see them throughout the day. Okay, so on that same note, again, very busy. Um, you, you have a lot of stuff going on. So what are your tips for working efficiently? Like, do you have a system of how you do things? 
you know, to stay on top of stuff because there's a thousand things you have to do throughout the day. How do you keep all that stuff straight? What are your tips for working efficiently? Is I think the, the biggest thing is just, even if, if it's in your head, if you write it down, but having a checklist, but also having like a weighted checklist of the things that are the most important, because at the end of the day, you can have 50 tasks. You have to have your, your best self reflection of which one of those is the most important, which one of those is the highest priority. So I mean, for me, it works out really well. But like my morning, I know what I'm doing as soon as I get there. I'm going to, I'm going to brew a pot of coffee. I'm going to get all the recruiting mailings and stuff put together um, and get them handed out to our head coach, our defensive coaches, the whole nine. And then I'm going to, you know, jump on it and do some other recruiting things with rivals and two, four, seven and that kind of stuff. Um, but I know that's what my six to seven o'clock window looks like going in every day. Like that, that's what, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and then meetings and, you know, practice and everything kind of maps itself out. But it's nice because as soon as practice is over, you know, priority number one is getting that film taken care of. So that mental checklist in mind, like, bang, like, I got to get that one checked off before I even venture to worry about anything else. Um, and then whether it's, you know, annotating the film for the coaches during their, you know, during the actual film watching time or whatever the case may be, but just keeping that mental checklist of what's most important to get done um, is number one. And if you have to actually write it down, write that thing down and check it off as you go. Um, I had to do that. I, my, my wallet got stolen last week. So I had to go on and um, change all of my auto pay bills to my new debit card. Now that one, I had to write a list down of all of my bills and check them off as I went. So to the person that's write it down, write it down. No shame in that game at all. Yeah, I'm the person that writes it down. And, and the big reason is, is because I like the satisfaction of crossing it off, you know? And uh, yeah, I usually try to put my things in order of like, this is the most important down to some things that if it gets pushed to tomorrow, it's okay. But there's always a really satisfying feeling at the end of the day when I pull that battered piece of paper that I've held onto all day and everything's crossed off. I'm like, all right, good. You know, I feel good about myself because, you know, so many times for me, you know, and I'm sure this would happen with you, things get going and things slip your mind or, you know, the little things. And, and so that, that helps me uh, keep things straight. Okay. Here's, here's the, um, here's the next question for you. Besides football, what's something else that you know a lot about that you might consider yourself an expert on? So I, my background is financial services. You know, I have my Series 6, my Series 63, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'd venture to say, like, pretty good idea on money management stuff just because that was a, a career. Um, but outside of that, like, that's where I think that's, that's where my my abundance of knowledge ends. You know, yeah, like, well, I, I, hey, football and money are two good things to. I mean, if you could be an expert in football and money, I, you know, you're going to have a lot of friends. What's your best just financial tip, really quick for coaches? Like financial tip, financial advice. What is it? <laughs> if you're a stipend position, save the money. Just put it away. Okay, like if you if you're getting paid. You know, whether it, I mean, Texas, I know y'all Texas folks, you get, you get those big stipends down South, you know, up here, we have guys, we have stipend positions that only get paid, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks. But generally speaking, that, that one paycheck or two paychecks you're going to get from coaching high school football in the fall, not going to make or break your budget, put it away. And if you have the chance to save, you know, 50 bucks a week or whatever the case may be, it's never too early to start saving. And it can make a huge difference if you're a young coach 
25 years old. I personally, I turned 27 next month. So pretty young guy myself. Um, it's never too early to start just putting a little something away. Um, and if you want to drive a big, fancy, nice car, drive a little bit less new and a little bit less fancier car and save the extra money. Just, just something like that. Just take that approach where put, just put a little bit away. There you go, guys. So you don't have to have the uh, the brand new truck or the brand new four-wheeler or whatever the case may be. Save your money. All right, here's the next one, Coach. Um, so, I, I, again, I mentioned at the top, I've never been in Indiana. We always ask a food question here in this part. Like, I'm come, if you're coming to Texas, you know, we're going to take you to some barbecue spots, some Tex-Mex spots, things like that. If if you're going to Indiana, if 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 I was coming to Indiana, where would you take me? What type of food are we getting into? I would say, like Indiana doesn't have like that that one thing. Like you know, Chicago has their deep dish pizza and whatever. But I would say, like being where I'm from in Indiana, if you're gonna come and we're gonna get like a true Indiana culinary experience, we're gonna find like the local Baptist church and go check out their fish fry. Because there's always fresh fish. There's a bunch yeah. of bunch of guys fishing all year round. And you're just gonna go to this fish fry. You got you got to be down with some greasy fish. Don't get me wrong. Like you're not about that. You're not gonna enjoy it. I, but, I'm down. I'm with it. I'm with it. Yeah. I, I mean, I was just in San Antonio for the the, the AFCA back in the yeah. beginning of January. Yep. That's the first thing we did. We went. I, the, the first morning I was there, I went to like get this little Tex-Mex type breakfast, and then that 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 lunch. That first lunch, we went to a barbecue spot. Like, and we told ourselves, like, we're going to be in Southern Texas. We're going to have Tex-Mex. We're going to eat barbecue. And that's what we're going to do for the week. Like, that's just how it's going to be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, and there's there's plenty of good spots there around the convention center to go and check out. Okay, uh, here here is the uh, here's the next question for you. Um, what is your coaching headgear of choice, like? cap bucket hat visor beanie i mean you're in you're in michigan it's cold you know it may like what's your your coaching headgear of choice yeah so um practice I, i'm a bucket hat guy but game day i've always preferred a visor um yeah cla classy big, it up a little bit visor guy. yeah yeah, yeah. I gotta, you gotta show off the hard part and everything you gotta, there you go <laughs> gonna pay twenty five dollars for a haircut you better be able to show that sucker off you know hey hey that's that's kind of my philosophy usually in practice i'm wearing a hat because of the sun or whatever um but hey man friday night like that's 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 payday right like yeah and you yeah. You, went, you went and spent some money on a haircut like hey let's let's go you got you got to show that thing off some so I, I'm, I'm with you on that okay we'll get you out of here on this one when you are studying or looking at other coaches uh, or defenses, like who are some guys that you like to study or that you've learned a lot from, or that you've, you know, that you've looked at in the past that you think we should go check out as coaches? Yeah. So I, I think I'll, I'm going to take this two, two different ways. Um, the first one, just because growing up, I was a Notre Dame fan. And then prior to getting into college coaching, I was actually a Notre Dame season ticket holder. So um, you know, we have our deal on Fridays, but then Saturday afternoons, like they were at home. I was in South Bend. Um, so Mike Elson was a big guy. Now, granted, he's a trader. <laughs> you know, he went home. He's he's, you know, um, Michigan's defensive line coach now. Um, but was at Notre Dame up until just this this last hiring cycle. Um, so he was a guy that I admired 
you know, and wanted to wanted to get in get into his teachings a little bit more and everything. Um, but then the foundation of me and the foundation of my knowledge of this game goes is attributed to one person, really. Um, my best friend's dad, who just so happened, he was our defensive coordinator uh, for a couple of years when I was in high school. He's the defensive coordinator still at the high school that I graduated from. Um, the dude just loves being a coach, loves being a mentor of young men, um, and loves defensive line play. And his name is Brad Moore. Um, and he's taught me not, not just a lot about this game, but a lot about how to love this game. And I, I, aside from those, I, I'm super blessed to like be, I've been here for seven weeks. So I can't like, I can't brag about him too much because, you know, like I don't, I don't know him that well, but I, Coach Denham and Coach Espo are lights out defensive line coaches. You know, like the the PFF or whoever the hell did those lists of the top 25 position coaches in the country and all this, whatever. And Espo was top 20 defensive line coaches in the nation. You know, like um, it's, it's an honor for me, but it's also great for me professionally to be able to come to work every day and work for a defensive coordinator who just so happens to be a defensive line guy who just also so happens to be a really, really good one. You know, and I think that's one of the, the biggest blessings to coaching at Western is the opportunity to work for Lou Esposito and being able to learn from him and how he coaches defensive line play. Yeah, I always love seeing uh, the the defensive line coach slash or defense coordinator slash defensive line uh, coach combination. Uh, that, that can sometimes yeah. be rare, uh, but I, but I, I love you love to see it, as they say. Well, coach. Uh, Man, really enjoyed talking with you today. We picked up some great stuff from you and uh, know that uh, you're going to do a great job there at Western Michigan. I want to wish you guys the best of luck as you uh, wrap up spring ball here in another week or two and then get ready to head into the uh, 2022 season. Yeah, man, I appreciate you. Michigan State, Friday night opener, September 3rd. We're, uh, you know, we're preparing for the Spartans, man. But I appreciate Yeah, we our spring game's next Saturday, and then um, that wraps up spring ball for us. So definitely exciting times uh, to look forward to in Kalamazoo. Man, I really enjoyed talking with Coach Rowe today and especially loved uh, his stat about how many steps uh, on average a defensive end takes when sacking a quarterback. That was really eye-opening for me, um, along with how, how much they stress the whole matching hands concept. Um, obviously, we, we all know that's important, but is that something that, that, honestly, that I have stressed a lot in my time teaching defensive line and really just teaching defensive play in general? No, it's not. And uh, I thought that was really interesting to hear how that directly correlates to incomplete passes by the quarterback. So really just a lot of great nuggets in today's conversation. So make sure you go and give Coach Rowe a follow on Twitter. Uh, you can find him at Coach Rowe underscore. So give him a follow. Let him know you heard him here on KYPD. You can also follow us at KYPD Podcast. And if you're liking what you're hearing, then do us a solid and go and leave us a five-star rating and a review. Our quote of the day comes straight from Coach Rowe's Twitter feed, and it goes like this. You have to wake up every morning and make the conscious decision to take steps towards greatness. It won't happen overnight, and it certainly won't happen for people who don't work for it. And that's a wrap for episode number 127. Thanks again for checking us out today. Have a great week. Bring the juice wherever you are and whatever you're doing. And speaking of juice, Coach Rowe, hit him a little bit of juice as we close this thing out today. Keep your pads down, baby.